0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClendon. Wade, you're going to
1: have to help me out a little bit on this one. I couldn't decide whether I should proclaim this episode the comical facial hair episode of the show or the
0: comical accents episode. You know, Kevin, I think there might be one more. The Imaginary Friend episode of the podcast.
1: That'll work, although possible spoiler alerts ahead. This week on the show, we've got a great episode for you. First up, we're going to be talking about Taika Waititi's latest film, A Tonal Tightrope
0: Walk About Nazi Germany jojo rabbit and then we dive into robert egger's period piece about two grizzly lighthouse keepers who may or may not be going insane i'm going to make wade spill his
1: beans on this episode episode 224 of seeing and
2: believing poor jojo what's wrong little man hi adolf want to tell me about that rabbit incident what was all that about
0: They wanted me to kill it. I'm sorry. I couldn't.
2: Don't worry about it. I couldn't care less.
0: But now they call me a scared rabbit.
2: Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. I'll let you in on a little secret. The rabbit is no coward. The humble little bunny faces a dangerous world every day, hunting carrots for his family, for his country. My empire will be full of all animals. Lions, giraffes, zebras, rhinoceroses, octopuses, rhinoctopuses, even the mighty rabbit. Cigarette?
0: Oh, no thanks, I don't smoke.
2: Let me give you some really good advice. Be the rabbit. The humble bunny can outwit all of his enemies. He's brave and sneaky and strong. Be the rabbit.
0: Jojo! Are you right, Jojo? Who are you talking to? Nobody.
1: Yes, we're here on episode 224 of the show. And, Wade, I... I am a little bit disappointed that we mm-hmm. couldn't do that entire intro segment with grizzled lighthouse keeper voices the entire <laughs> way through, but you know, you don't always get what you want.
0: Yeah. And I'm afraid that that is on me because I, I don't know how to do that accent. I just sound like a pirate. That's all. Just pirate Wade. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, to be fair, you may have saved us from some horrible embarrassment, so we'll we'll just call it a wash. We are going to be talking about The Lighthouse Keeper, of course, in the second half of the show. One of my most anticipated—in fact, I think that was my number one most anticipated— film of the last bit of the year. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. But first wade, we're going to be talking about an equally uh, surprising and interesting film, JoJo Rabbit. JoJo Rabbit of course is Taika Waititi's latest film fresh off his success with Thor Ragnarok, which means that he went from just about the surest bet there is these days in American filmmaking to a kind of film that tries to walk a line that few have attempted and even fewer have succeeded at, offering a humorous, whimsical perspective on Hitler's Nazi Germany. The main character is Jojo, played by newcomer Roman Griffin Davis, a young boy who is all in on the Third Reich, from his participation in the Hitler Youth to the imaginary friendship he has with Adolf Hitler himself, played here by Taika Waititi. Jojo's mother, played by Scarlett Johansson, watches his enthusiasm for fascism with dismay, but Jojo's familiar world of anti-Semitism and Nazi talking points is disrupted when he discovers that his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their home. Like I mentioned, Wade, Waititi, who is Jewish himself, takes an approach to this material that is one of whimsy Familiar to anyone who watched his other film about a troubled boy developing a strange friendship with an unsympathetic adult, Hunt for the Wilder People. Obviously, what he's doing with Jojo Rabbit is a tricky balancing act. My question for you is, does he pull it off?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) It's the question everybody's been asking since this film was announced. And I I think the answer is maybe a little bit of both i i think if this film would have been made a few years ago maybe five years ago it would be seen as probably a little more mature than people will see it today i the idea of of nazis uh Living in our country, it, it was strange. And I talked about this a little bit last week with with Brian Raftery. It was, it, we, were, we were talking about American beauty and the idea of, of just, you know, Nazism in the United States. It just feels very strange. And our world has changed. And in this film, you know, Watiti goes the simple route. And essentially the message of this movie is when we begin to hang around those who are different than us, even those people that we hate or we have a faulty perspective of, then that will change our perspective. And that there are good people all around us who will often do bad things. And it just feels too simple for today. At the same time, I think there is something a bit charming about a movie that says, Hey, could it be possible for people to hang out with one another and for their perspectives to be changed? So it, it's almost endearing, but it almost doesn't work. So I'm, I'm of a mixed mind, of a mixed mind with this film. Uh, I, I'm interested in, in your take, Kevin. What, what do you think about this movie?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty strongly mixed on this film myself. There's there's a lot about it that doesn't work. And I would say that ultimately the kind of balancing act that YTT is going for here, he doesn't end up pulling it off. I think that there are a lot of false notes and some pretty significant tonal whiplash going on in this film that makes it kind of fall on its face in the end. To his credit, there's a lot that does work about it. Um, I like the way that the relationship between JoJo and Elsa, the Jewish girl who's, uh, hiding in their attic, who's played by Thomas and McKenzie, who you and I both really liked in Leave No Trace, the, uh, great film from, uh, last year. Just, she was great in that. She's great in this. And the relationship that, develops between her and Jojo is I the way that the path that YTD finds for them to go, where it's very adversarial at first and ends up, you know, they become very close to each other. That I think is, is more or less well done. I think where the film uh, veers off course is with the whimsical tone that YTD attempts in the, imaginary friend scenes between Jojo and, you know, this fantasy version of Hitler that he conjures up out of his own mind. There's it's just so light and it's done with the same sort of touch that Hunt for the Wilder people employed to to much greater success, that it doesn't. It's not so much that it feels offensive, it's more just that it doesn't feel as if the turn that this relationship eventually takes fully turns the corner that YTD wants to wants it to and i'm i'm trying to be intentionally vague so i don't spoil anything but as jojo grows closer to elsa that of course affects this imaginary relationship he has with hitler and the first of those the former of those relationships works pretty well the latter Struggles a lot more to find a point of view that feels both earned and also fully appreciative of the fact that Hitler is kind of this just avatar of pure evil. And Y.T.D. just doesn't manage to finesse that quite enough.
0: Yeah, I, I think the whimsical nature of the relationship works at the beginning where the character is he's in his own world. Uh, he wants to be a Nazi. That's his, his dream. He has posters of Hitler on his wall. He finds acceptance in that movement. And it's even alluded to later in the picture that people kind of just want to be a part of a club. They want to feel needed. They want to feel valued. And we think, okay, that, that's him. The character arc of this Hitler character doesn't feel very rounded. Uh, it's abrupt, uh, especially towards the end, as you noted. And that does hurt the movie. And by the time we get to the third act, the imaginary friend almost feels like a gimmick versus something that's actually adding to the story and adding to JoJo's journey. Now, I'll also be the first person to say that... Watiti is really funny. And the dialogue in this film is really funny. And it's it's an easy film, I think, to watch. And it sounds strange when you're talking about a film that alludes to the Holocaust and alludes to Hitler and World War II. But it is pretty easy because it it's funny. And we have some funny characters throughout this movie. And Watiti just kind of plays up the imaginary friend and it's kind of silly and strange and I think for some people that's going to work a little bit better than uh, – it's going to work for for other people. But yeah, the development is not there to fully integrate that storyline in the film and then I, I do think the film – suffers from some pacing problems. Things are kind of happening quick and things are kind of moving quick. And I'm not sure that everything sinks in like it should. But then again, I, you know, I'll just repeat myself. I laughed out loud a lot in this movie and it was never one of those movies that I feel like we've reviewed, you know, numerous times this year where I'm just like, okay, let's let's get this over with but it was kind of an enjoyable experience and then to reiter- reiterate again maybe that's part of the problem it just it is kind of really enjoyable uh even given it's it's subject matter
1: i thought a lot about wes anderson's the grand budapest hotel while hmm. watching this film and there there's a lot of shared dna between jojo rabbit and that film, both of them, obviously, you know, Anderson's kind of the, the you know, he, he has a lot of whimsy in his own films. The Grand Budapest Hotel also deals with the rise of uh, some totalitarian uh, form of government in its fictional setting. Um, and the way that Anderson manages to harmonize those two things, I think, is really special. That was my favorite film of of its year. I think it's really great. And... Part of that is that uh, Ray Fiennes' character is such a strong center in that film, both supplying these really strong comedic moments and also these deeply melancholy moments that tie into the, the heavier material surrounding this, this specter of fascism that's overtaking the genteel world that these characters inhabit. In Jojo Rabbit, I don't really think... It has that same kind of center. Scarlett Johansson's mother character is fine, but she doesn't anchor the film in the same way that uh, Gustav did in the Grand Budapest Hotel. And I think that hurts the film because you really need something to orient you in this kind of story to to help you make those leaps from the 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 heavier moments to the more lighthearted moments. And with Ray Fiennes helping you that do that in grand Budapest hotel, it just, it flows a lot better. And this one, it kind of feels like it's lurching from, okay, here's a section where, y- you know, the, the Jojo's obsession with Hitler is kind of equated to Beatle mania. You know, he's running through the streets, throwing up the Sieg Heil while a Beatle song plays on the soundtrack. And it's very, it's, it, it, it's got this weird ch- charm in, and energy to it, which is one tone. And then there's another scene where we literally see a Nazi, like, strap a grenade to a child and send them into battle against the allies. And that is a really huge gulf to bridge. And Waititi kind of just doesn't really build a bridge between them. And so we end up going from one to the other. And it, it feels like you're in a in a— Car with a student driver just kind of lurching back and forth, and there's no real flow to it, and it's it's a problem.
0: I I think I mean I th- I think you're right. I think that's a good comparison. The just melancholy nature of Wes Anderson's movies, and particularly The Grand Budapest Hotel, and not seeing that type of finesse here, I do like the absurdity of certain situations and that in-section where they're kind of throwing kids into the war at one point saying just shoot anyone who looks different than us I think that probably works more often than it doesn't work just because this is a movie that's taking things to the extreme uh, the emotional center is missing at times and I, you know well, T.T., I, I think he has the skill to get there because there's there's one scene in the – I think it's towards the middle of the movie that's really great, and it's with Scarlett Johansson, and I like her a lot in this movie. I think she she plays her character pretty well. I agree with you in that it, it's probably not written like it should be written. Uh, but in the middle of the movie, she essentially – plays the part of her husband who's missing Jojo's father. He's, he's gone. They're not really sure where he is. And she plays the mother and the father and she speaks to Jojo and gets angry at him and then apologizes and have, you know, has all these conversations and they kind of dance together. And it's, I think it's, it's really good. Now, where we go with her character, I think is a missed opportunity. And I was just kind of baffled by some of the choices that were made. Uh, all that to say, Watiti does include some of those scenes, but it just doesn't work. I I think like it should, uh, we get some fun scenes of absurdity. You mentioned that. I want to hold your hand. There's a a montage at this camp where these kids are learning how to be soldiers. Um, at one point they kind of throw them all into a swimming pool to practice water warfare. And and I think that stuff works fairly well. It's it's pretty funny, but it does seem like there is this chord that's missing in the movie that Watiti just doesn't quite get. And um which which is a shame because like I said, th- this is A really funny film. I see what Waititi is going
1: for in those moments. I I kind of get... It's almost like he's going for maybe... Almost a Kurt Vonnegut kind of look at this war where it's so absurd. Like, these Nazis are just so uh, utterly bigoted and so convinced of their racial purity and... Uh, so blinkered by their reverence for Hitler himself that it crosses over into the absurd, and you can laugh at them in the same way that you laugh at the uh, you know Mel Brooks as the producers. You know, there's that kind of re- evil that is just so over the top that it kind of circles back around and becomes almost ridiculous. And you, I feel like. I can see the outlines of what YTD was straining for with this film, but so much of it just doesn't land for me. And this is probably where you kind of just have to make the concession that these sorts of tonal issues and, and issues with humor are highly subjective and what works for one person may not work for another. For me overall, I, it just doesn't work for me. I just don't think that the... The strength of the writing isn't there. And it might be almost maybe because YTD feels like because he is telling the story through the eyes of a child, he feels like he has to pull his punches a little bit to make it kind of coated with this veneer of innocence because Jojo doesn't really understand what it means to hate Jews. He just hates them because he's kind of been indoctrinated to believe that way. And to its credit, that's something that the film recognizes in a conversation between Elsa and Jojo's mother that's drawn out a little bit but in practice uh pulled out throughout the entire film it just it feels almost as if T- Waititi is missing so many opportunities to really land the satirical punches that he wants to either because he's afraid of going all the way or because he thinks that Presenting it as almost childish will be a more – will be a stronger satirical attack. And and for me, it's just not.
0: Yeah, and it it depends on on how he thinks this – how effective he thinks this film might be in changing people's perspectives and saying, okay, let's just kind of get really absurd and silly and almost simple and see if that – might open our eyes a little bit more i, I i'm not sure i think there are going to be people who and, and i don't i'm not sure how it even works for me but there's one character towards the end that almost i don't know if you'd say quote-unquote finds redemption uh but someone who kind of has a change of heart in a way possibly and i i don't i don't know i don't know how that works uh, i do like the cast here uh, you mentioned Thomasin McKenzie, and I talked about Scarlett Johansson. Both are very good. I think Roman Griffiths, sorry, Roman Griffin Davis, who plays JoJo, uh, he does a fine job. Sam Rockwell's funny. Rebel Wilson is probably the funniest that I've ever seen her. And, um, certainly haven't seen all of her work, but I think she's, she's really good. And then JoJo's friend, Yorkie, played by Archie Yates, is, uh, he's, he's really funny as well. So yeah, I, I think mileage is going to vary depending on who's watching this film and their frame of mind and just kind of where they're at. And it might work really well for some people. Uh, not so much. I I think, I think for me, it it probably worked better than it didn't work. Uh, if I had to kind of just bring all my thoughts together in, in you know, one sentence.
1: Yeah. Uh, for me, it would probably be maybe the inverse of that is that there are, touches I respect about this film but it it doesn't work more than it does work for me and I respect YTD for taking such a huge risk I mean this is not the film of a timid filmmaker or a filmmaker who's playing it safe and I do appreciate that about him but unfortunately it just doesn't quite land here Listeners, if you have had a chance to see Jojo Rabbit and are puzzling through these same questions yourselves, we would love to get your thoughts on that. You can always email us, of course, at c a p c at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at pod. Let us know your thoughts there as well. Don't go anywhere. We're going to dive into the lighthouse, maybe literally, in segment two. Don't go anywhere.
0: Listeners, we want to take an opportunity to thank you so much for supporting our podcast. There are a couple of different ways that you can do that. One is writing a review for us on iTunes. It's easy. Just hop onto iTunes, search for Seeing and Believing, give us a star rating, and then type out a short blurb about the podcast. It could be good or bad, Uh, hopefully, hopefully Kevin, uh good.
1: Yes, you
0: hopefully <laughs> that would be. Yeah, that's that's what we like to read. That's that's what we like to read. That's what I I print out and I frame uh, the good reviews. I, <laughs> I I don't do that with the bad reviews. You can also support our Patreon campaign. A lot of levels of donation you get some perks. And one of my favorite levels of donation, Kevin, and I say this every week, but it's true every week, it is the what can you buy for $5 level. And just thinking about that question has me curious, Kevin, what do you think someone could buy for 5 bucks? Uh, Five dollars would get you some uh, seeing
1: and believing branded uh, pool floaties. You know those little hmm. water wings. Um, yeah. And you know we're we're critics, so we will even send them filled with hot air for you.
0: Yeah i I think that's a really great deal. If you don't know how to swim, or your child or friend doesn't know how to swim, uh, we cannot be responsible. For if these floaties work, but we can send them to you for $5. I mean, that, yeah, that's a great deal. We're,
1: we're, we're not responsible for, for any uh, damages or injuries that result from the use of the water wings. We, we only take responsibility for our movie opinions. But mm. if you feel like taking your life into your own hands or the mm. life of your child into your own hands with these branded accessories... That option is open to you.
0: Yeah. And I'll even say sometimes we don't even, you know, we won't even take full responsibility for our movie opinions either. So there's also, (laughs) there's also that. You can support us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash sing underscore believing underscore podcast.
1: Yeah, and you can also support not just us by uh, going on to Patreon, donating that way. You can also support us by becoming a member of Christ and Pop Culture. You help support the podcast when you do that. That's also $5 a month. When you do that, you also help support those writers who are producing great articles for the site. And I don't know if you heard about this, Wade, but a certain Kanye West recently came out with an album of Christian music. And, Mm. uh, you know, know, it's sort of a niche thing. Probably not too many people have heard of this guy, but I know who Kanye West is. Yeah, Um, I'm plugged into the zeitgeist. And our own Timothy Thomas had a really good review of Kanye's gospel album up on the site. Uh, Went up on Halloween, so make of that what you will. It's called A Kanye Gospel Album We Didn't Need... But welcome. And it's just a really great look at the album as a whole and sort of navigating the questions that it brings up and that also get brought up around. Kanye Celebrity and Christian Conversions and all that. So it's it's a really great piece, and that's the sort of writing you support when you become a member.
0: Yes, listeners, definitely go check out com. Give our writers some love, and as always, we appreciate your support here at Seeing and Believing. We also want to remind you to reach out if you have an opinion about one of the films that we review, or maybe you think we should review something else. Make sure to let us know. You can tweet us at CBeliefPod at CBelief, P-O-D on Twitter or you can email us seeingandbelieving C-A-P-C at gmail.com
2: What made your last keeper leave? He believed that there was some enchantment in the light. Went mad he did. Tall tales. what 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 to strike ye dead, Winslow! HARK! Alright, have a joy.
0: We are back with seeing and believing. We are going from whimsical and absurd in JoJo Rabbit to something a little bit darker, Kevin, and. For those people who've heard us talk about The Witch or The Vitch, whatever you, you know, use to pronounce that movie, uh know that Robert Eggers is one of those filmmakers that we, we're interested in but we're also a little scared of. We're scared of. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, I'm on record as saying that The Witch really got under my skin when I saw it in the theater, and I, I find it really effective and also a film that I just don't personally have a whole lot of interest in revisiting, although that may change one of these days. I might screw my courage up again. But either way, despite the fact that he scares us both, we, we both respect him a lot. So I was really looking forward to seeing if I would have the same scared-out-of-my-wit's reaction to uh, The Lighthouse.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, somebody was talking to me about The Witch the other day, and I was joking. I said, you know, it's one of those movies where it gets to the end, and it's like, all right, let's go full-on Satan worship now, Um, which definitely <laughs> definitely freaked me out. Uh, listeners, we're going to continue this episode with our review, like I mentioned, of Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. Here's the film's official, if enigmatic, synopsis. The Lighthouse tells the hypnotic and hallucinatory tale of two lighthouse keepers on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. That's about as much as I'll give you right now. The film stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. So, we have routinely referenced Edgar's 2015 horror barn burner The Witch. My question to begin this discussion is that of Lighthouse's effectiveness. So not necessarily, Kevin, did you like this movie? Did you not like this movie? But good or bad, in your opinion, is the Lighthouse effective and what seems to be its primary intent? That is to create a claustrophobic journey into madness and paranoia. <laughs> well uh, my answer to that question
1: is the same as the answer I would give for the witch actually in that it is extremely effective Eggers knows exactly what he's doing he's fully in command of creating this this atmosphere of just ever escalating dread and and oppressiveness and Madness eventually it goes it goes to the madness place as well, and he just marshals all of the cinematic tools at his disposal to do that. He's got uh two uh performances from Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson that are pretty much unlike anything else I've ever seen them do. They are there's an almost elemental quality, particularly to Dafoe's performance, where you. What you really believe he is this lighthouse keeper who has been on the island where they are for a very long time and is just takes his lighthouse keeping very very seriously. The sound work in this film is is effective as well. There's an early sequence where we see Pattinson's character shoveling coal into a furnace to help power the the light. And uh, that is in this kind of industrial basement. We hear the foghorn outside and the clanking of machinery inside. And it's just this very Stygian kind of atmosphere that... Eggers creates with that and then of course there is the cinematography black and white this time with Jaron Blaschke who also did the cinematography for The Witch which I think is probably that film's strongest aspect and he brings a similar sense for how to light a scene in a way for maximum unsettling power so it's all very effective the other question that you that you uh, kind of half-asked there that I'm just going to go ahead and answer is yes, I did like The Lighthouse quite a bit. I think it's very good. I am curious to know what you th- think of both of those questions. Was it effective and did you like it?
0: Well, I, I'd say some of it is effective. I, I You know, it, it feels strange going into this movie and watching it and feeling like it it checks off all of these boxes for quote unquote cinema with the trademark symbol at the end. I, you know, it's got that boxy ratio 191 to invoke, uh, the silent film era, but also to help us to feel a little bit more claustrophobic. Uh, we've got some. Really kind of fun lines of dialogue. We've got themes of, of madness and the idea of, well, what's real and what's inside this person's head? And we, we get this sort of bizarre imagery that might mean something or possibly maybe won't mean something. And so, I don't know, it, it all feels sort of, by the numbers to me in terms of what this movie is, is trying to accomplish. Like this, okay, this is a movie about cinema and we're supposed to kind of revel at it and, and, and ponder it and say, wow, you know, what does this mean? I, I, I don't know if it's all that full. And maybe I'm the minority here, uh, but I, I walked away saying, okay, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess it's a movie about isolation and about madness and kind of what's you know what's going on in inside these characters heads but does it really do anything other than emulate better films like the shining or or a movie uh similar to that i i i just i don't know in terms of enjoyment not necessarily i don't think i really enjoyed this movie some of it's funny and and i think too it goes back to Jojo Rabbit and how we mentioned that some people are going to find this funnier than others and I think with The Lighthouse, some people are going to find it funnier than other people do and for me um I thought it was amusing Uh, i think there are little clues and little details that add to some of the humor and this is one of those movies where every little thing means everything at least that's the way it feels like and that's kind of fun to just okay yeah yeah oh there's this connection here and, and there's that connection there but i i'm at this point unsure of if it if it really kind of pushes any boundary further than that And perhaps that would be something I just need to reflect on and maybe watch this movie again and kind of see where I'm at there. I just – I don't think I got it in a way a lot of other people and what it sounds like uh, in the way that that you, Kevin, got it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I I feel a lot of sympathy for for what you describe your reaction as even though with this film I don't completely uh, resonate with it. Because I had a similar reaction to another really famous touchstone of of cinema, particularly black and white cinema, David Lynch's Eraserhead, which is also, you know, this this film that's that's shot in you know this this boxy aspect ratio. It's full of these sequences that don't literally advance a a sensible plot. And yet, but they're meant to suggest something almost on, on a psychological or, um, uh, and, um, at the level of atmosphere and mood that's g- difficult to articulate. And that's sort of the point is that it's not really trying to tell a story or evoke a theme so much as it's just trying to kind of explore this headspace and bring the viewer along and, kind of hold your hand through the first part of it and then just sort of abandon you in it and let you try to sink or swim based on what you know of it already. With Eraserhead, I that's a film that I struggle with a lot myself, in that I think that there's a lot of effective stuff in it, but I'm not sure that it really amounts to as much as perhaps it should. With the light so the Lighthouse I think is treading similar territory, but what for me I think works better is that there's a lot even though that there's there's not really a logical through line that i can point to in the lighthouse there's so much that doesn't make logical sense there's not really a whole lot of limbing the thematic heft of its story in the same way that even something like the witch did that sort of lets the viewer hold on to something. This is kind of a spiral into madness. And part of the point of spiraling into madness is there aren't really handholds because you're spiraling. Um, but I appreciate the lighthouse in a way that I didn't appreciate Eraserhead because I always feel like there's a, there's a spiritual dimension to Eggers's work that I don't really get from Lynn from Lynch. They both at least the lighthouse and racer had kind of do similar things, but there are things that Eggers does in the dialogue and in just the general setup of this lighthouse that towers above these characters that they're both kind of obsessed with that speaks of this imminent spirituality, not in words or in specific visual cues that immediately evoke spirituality, but create this atmosphere that, at least for me, work on a an inarticulate level to bring me there. Like, for instance, there's this toast that Willem Dafoe's character says before every meal. He says, God who hears the surges roll, deign to save a suppliant soul. And I don't know if that really means anything in terms of, like, you know, this is a theme that's running through the entire film— but it's just a little grace note that helps me get on the film's wavelength so that when the spiral into madness comes I'm along for the ride and I'm into it.
0: Yeah, and you know with with The Witch, that film is is very much about being cut off from community and these characters are almost they are excommunicated in The Witch and almost pulled out from spiritual covering which leads to XYZ. And we kind of get that here. These characters are excommunicated from the rest of the world, though in some ways you can make it the case that it is voluntarily, in other ways perhaps not voluntarily. Um, and this sense that they've lost connection to a benevolent creator. And at one point, Defoe asked Pattinson's character, he asked him about, God, he has him if he, if he if he prays, and Pattinson talks about how he's a God-fearing individual, but he doesn't pray. And so he has this knowledge of God, but there's no real relationship or connection to this God character. And as a result, he's, he's falling into madness, and he's being seduced by other forces. So I think there are those ideas there. I, I don't know if I could pull much from that other than what I just mentioned. I I will say to Edgar's, his, um to to just kind of give him uh, kudos, there is this presence in the movie, this this hovering ominous presence. And I, I would say the lighthouse is a character. I think the lighthouse is a character, but it's even outside of that. And part of that is the cinematography and just the, rugged nature of that terrain and what that means and what that says psychologically from, from the rocks to the architecture and and even to the lighting, which, which feels at least it looks like natural lighting and the way that it doesn't flatter these characters, but it accentuates their eyes and their cheekbones and their wrinkles. And I think a good, a good way, a good word to describe the lighting on many of these faces is jagged. This is, this is a jagged place and the characters themselves are jagged. And the way that the film also denotes separation, community separation, and how that plays out with the body, how that plays out with the body sexually, how it plays out with, with passing gas, with burping, things that you would not do in public suddenly become the norm when you are cut off from that safety net. So there are some ideas. I I wish there were a few more connection points for me, and I I wish the film kind of, I don't know, maybe dug deeper into that or at least showed me something else. But Eggers does have those ideas embedded uh, into this story.
1: Well, you mentioned the, uh, the the kind of vulgarity of these characters, the, the fleshliness of them, I guess. You know, the fact that Willem Dafoe's character is, you know, constantly farting and it it gets on Pattinson's character's (laughs) nerves. There are these scenes that suggest, uh, unhealthy sexual fixations for for both of these characters, they you know they eat and they drink and they 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 vomit and they have to carry the chamber pots outside and all of it's it's grimy yes but it's not just grimy for the sake of rubbing your nose in it I think that for me all of that stuff works together to give the film just this this elementality to it the fact that these these characters the, these two men are almost forces of nature in their own right even while the forces of nature are kind of going nuts around them there's lightning flashing in the sky. The waves are crashing on the shore. The wind is howling. The light is sort of like struggling to pierce through the fog. And then inside their house, these two men are just shouting at each other and getting, getting drunk and singing sea shanties. And it's got kind of this again this elemental quality to it feels a lot like the same sort of stuff that Herman Melville does in Moby Dick that's just speaks to this raw energy and power of nature and of man striving against it and man striving against himself and against his brother and i think that it's it's so effective in this film there's you mentioned the cinematography as well and there's this one scene where uh Pattinson's character is uh he he insults <laughs> he insults uh defoe's cooking he says you know your lobster isn't really that great the lobster you make isn't that great and defoe is seems genuinely wounded by this at first and then he just goes berserk he jumps to his feet he screams to the heavens literally and he essentially calls down the wrath of neptune on Pattinson for not liking his cooking and that entire shot, he shot from a low angle and the lighting in that scene is just in his eyes and on his cheekbones. And he looks like he's made out of bronze or something, or like he's almost this almost caught fire in a way. It's just, it's a very spooky moment and he's just, he's just calling down all sorts of, uh, of curses down upon Pattinson's character just because he doesn't like his cooking. And that's kind of represented for me of the energy this film has where there's this mundanity in their interactions, but it just builds into something that becomes about more than that. There's this, this wildness and, and spiritual struggle here that's going on that is in and around their their actions in their life together. And just, it worked really well for me. I liked it quite a bit.
0: Yeah. And, and I I do think there's some, there's some plotting issues when you talk about some of that, some of those monotonous activities. And I I think some of that hurts the films and, and the film's momentum. Uh, But there are some scenes like the one you mentioned where Defoe, who has a great performance here, Brings down those curses, and you are genuinely, I know for me anyway, I was genuinely struck by, wow, like this is not a good thing. This actually might mean something. Like these curses might actually happen to these characters. And it kind of goes back to that that presence. There there seems to be this otherworldly force involved. And there, there certainly seems to be a trend in, in the filmography of some filmmakers to accentuate those forces and the idea that this world isn't necessarily a closed box. And so what we get here and what we get in The Witch and some other movies, and, and I think horror has a unique opportunity to do this, is to essentially say, that what if the forces that are around us could be evil? What would that actually look like? And this almost affirmation of the supernatural in some shape or some, some form. And, and we get, we get that here. And then the idea of characters being possessed by madness, but perhaps not just being possessed by a psychological madness. Uh, it's not just oh you know i'm i'm in the same place with the same person for a long period of time but there is this almost demonic force guiding those individuals along and and i'm kind of struck by that at the end it 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 goes past the psychological is this in this person's head is this not and seems to denote that there is another force involved besides you know whatever's happening between you know, the two ears of these characters of this of this both of these characters
1: yeah i man I, I wish we could do a spoiler cast about this film because there is there's so much to talk about the the significance and the meaning of its maybe final third where you begin to question the reality of the situation that these two characters find themselves in, and you also begin to wonder you know is this is this a literal job that they've both taken to get paid to to uh man a lighthouse, or is there something kind of more existential going on here? We know that pattinson's character it it is revealed that He feels some guilt over something in his past. He doesn't like to talk about it when that secret finally comes out, when he spills his beans as the, as the trailer uh, mentions. um, We, we learn about him and we begin to understand his, all of his actions through a different light, you know, kind of this, this hovering guilt, this sense that he, he has to atone in, in a way. And, that for the film's final third begins to bring us into a place that it doesn't feel it, it for me at least it almost it doesn't feel literal it feels like something else and i think that something else is maybe why uh horror or maybe i don't know if i would call this a horror movie but sort of the supernatural mode that Eggers is working in here is ideal for this kind of story because he doesn't really have to explain exhaustively what's going on here. He can just sort of construct this mood piece and bring the audience into it and let us sort of experience the kind of alienation and dread that these characters are experiencing and draw our own meaning out of that. And I really appreciate the confidence he has in in letting us do that, even though kind of the natural byproduct of that approach is for some people, it's just not going to work that way, and that's that's just life. But for me, it definitely – it was firing on all cylinders.
0: Yeah, and it's definitely something that I, do, I struggle with with this film is it, it immediately strikes me as something that's a little too ambiguous and a little too open and a little too much, oh, well, you know, almost fodder for those conversations uh, late at night when you're like, well, you know, what if – this character was actually, those types of, of, um, discussions. And at what point is a, is a movie, um, uh, uh, ambiguous enough to invite these really well-structured conversations, these really interesting ideas, or where is it just kind of, I don't know if you, even know if you would say lazy, but the sense that, you know, you could hit anything with that. And I don't know if the film is pointed enough at the end to really kind of work for me. And I, I do think that Eggers just didn't close the deal and he leaves the door open too far. But once again, I, I, I think, it, and maybe it's just a theme with this episode that different people are going to watch both of the movies that we talk about today and are going to have different reactions based on kind of where they're at. And maybe that's just where I'm at. And what I'm thinking about as I, you know, as I watch this, this film, The The Lighthouse. Yeah, well, uh, that's, that's
1: probably a pretty good note to end on. And I, and I think that you're right. I am curious to know if you ever do get around to rewatching The Lighthouse. I want to know if it changes for you at all in that second viewing. Listeners, if you have had one or multiple viewings of Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse, I know I'm super curious to know <laughs> what your take is on it. This seems like a film that's primed to offer almost as many readings as there are audience members for it. So definitely, definitely let us know what you think. Email or tweet us. We'd love to hear from you about it. For now, though, Wade, we'll move away from crazed lighthouse keepers on the, si- on the shores of a unquiet sea and move to the recommendation segment where we recommend something from the world of television or film to our listeners.
0: What do you have for us this week? Yeah, so there is a documentary that I have been looking forward to seeing for some time uh, this year, and it hit theaters, but I I don't know if it actually hit theaters near me, but a lot of people have been raving about it, and it is the film Amazing Grace. And so here's kind of how this movie came about. Uh, Aretha Franklin, she performs with a choir at New Bethel Baptist Church in Los Angeles in 1972. She's recording a gospel album, which is a big deal at the time. And Sidney Pollack is going to direct this feature. Uh, I think. I think what's supposed to happen is it's supposed to be on TV. There are some technical difficulties... And this film never gets finished. They just can't do it under the, you know, the current 1972 technology. Well, all of it's brought out. And if I understand correctly, I think it's Alan Elliott who actually helps to finish this film or at least is, is kind of working with Pollock on this movie. They finish the movie. It's the concert set over two days. And Aretha Franklin is amazing. She sings these gospel songs and it really is kind of this spiritual experience. It's one of those, it's one of those documentaries that you just, you watch over and over because it's so fantastic and it just, it snowballs with each viewing, uh, even if you're not necessarily uh, overtly familiar with her work. So I'm going to recommend that. It is Alan Elliott and Sidney Pollack's Amazing Grace featuring the great Aretha Franklin.
1: Amazing Grace is one of those documentaries that I'm really looking forward to catching up with because I've heard so many good things about it, and I, I've heard that especially just the the, the music itself, uh, especially if you're a Christian, just the spiritual power behind her art is, is really something to see. So I can't wait to catch up with it. And I'm really glad to have uh, yet another trusted source uh, give a recommendation for it. So I'm uh, definitely going to maybe bump that up higher on my list. My recommendation for this week is actually another documentary. So that's, that's kind of funny that we both ended up in that place. Uh, my recommendation is from a while ago, though. It's uh, just had its... Ninetieth anniversary this year, and that is Ziga Vertov's 1929 Man with a Movie Camera. I had the chance to see this at the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago, with a with a live piano player kind of providing the soundtrack. And I don't know that. Th- let me tell you, this film is something else. It's kind of the the basic premise behind it is Vertov himself kind of just takes his camera into a city, and he's sort of captures life as it's lived and then stitches it together in kind of this whirling impressionistic hole that stitches together all sorts of spheres of life and different, um, uh, leisure pursuits and professional pursuits that all these people he's been filming are engaging in and kind of weaves them into this tapestry of humanity, I guess. And it's, Difficult to really describe in words. This is one of those films that really could only be a film. There's really no other way to do something like this without the power of montage, editing. Uh, all of those things come together and just create the singular experience that says so much just about people in general, but also about how the act of looking can shape and color a world all by itself. So if you can watch it, I would definitely recommend it. I've heard that it is on YouTube. It's in the public domain, so you might be able to find a version of it to watch for free on YouTube if that's more of your of your deal, although I don't know if there is a music soundtrack available on those releases, but in any case, this is one of those films that you definitely want to track down and check out just to Get a sense for one of the wellsprings of documentary filmmaking, just cinematic technique in general. It's, uh, it's that good.
0: Yeah, it really is wonderful. I had to get it through Interlibrary alone. I think it was last year I watched it for the first time. And just, you know, there's this dual nature to the movie. One is almost standing at all at the filmmaking. And I think you said it well that it, it wrestles with the camera eye and it, you know, the man with the, with the movie camera. That's, that's the, that person is the star of this film. And we get to see that perspective, but also just to be able to see 1920s life in Russia and what that looks like and to see these individuals and to observe their lives. It, it's just kind of something special so it works on a you know a number of different levels so yeah i really like that pick kevin
1: yeah it's uh, i think did, did you happen to uh have this as one of your recommendations on an earlier episode i feel like hmm. you might have but I, i'm not <laughs> sure if that was
0: actually the case i might have just imagined that uh I don't remember. I should make a spreadsheet with all of our recommendations. I don't remember. (laughs) But either way, I know for a fact that there are people listening to this episode who haven't seen it. So if we can remind them, then it's a win. Well, listeners, that is our episode today once again make sure to rate review the show and if you can shoot us a short message about these movies or maybe other films that we've talked about in the past let us know what you think you can tweet us at SeeBeliefPod on twitter at SeeBeliefPod. you can also email us seeing and believing capc at gmail.com Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clawson, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing,
1: an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at Christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.